I am not Joe. <laughs> you were only hoping there, Bob. Um, and I got a red, the red light's on, is that okay? Yeah, should I press it? It might have accidentally gotten pressed or you might have muted it. Is that battery? Ah, okay. Well, while our highly efficient technical team is coming to um, remedy that situation, let me tell you about another book. It's called, it's not on the book table back there, but I took the liberty of asking if they brought some copies with them. If you don't know the Strapmans, they're back here in the back, Jay and Daniel and Sue. And um, it's kind of Daniel's story, but it really isn't in a sense. It's really a book that expresses God's faithfulness in the lives of the Stratman family. It's called When Losing is Winning. And um, I highly recommend it. You can see Jay in the back. He has some copies with him. And anybody who wants one, avail yourself. There's also an address on the back if he doesn't have enough with him of where you can get them. And um, he didn't mention anything about money, but I know that's not an issue. But anyway, if there is any money, the proceeds don't go to them. It goes to something else, which the book explains. So. Um, Really recommend it when losing is winning. And um, let me get Rig back up here. Now, it's good to be here. I've already been blessed tremendously uh, in one way. Folks like the Stratmans are here. We get to renew acquaintances. One of the great things about conferences. Um, the Crabs are here. It's been 100 years since I've seen them. Uh, Jeannie has hardly aged at all. Uh, on the other hand, the other part of us might have, you know, put on a year or two. But I know it's been over 20 years since we saw one another last. And uh, good to see them again. And other friends from Florida. Where's Steve? There you are. Yes, Manisha, nice to see you folks. And Silica. Listen, I have had the privilege, these folks of Silica, the young ladies of Silica. That's what I think of them as. The young ladies of Silica, because at Yosemite, so often, notes, little handwritten things, just tokens of encouragement, some that I still keep and treasure uh, for them, some of those young ladies that have written me, you know, when I was there at conference, just uh, little things of encouragement. So the Lord's encouraged me tremendously. Fantastic story with Sam today. I uh, don't have time to go into all that, but amazing a story of... Uh, how someone connected with Sam through uh, VoicesForChrist.org. If you're not familiar with Voices for Christ, over 60,000 messages have been digitized. They're uploaded. You can download them for free, listen for free, get copies of them, you know, with no charge. So it's a tremendous website, a lot of good ministry on there. And uh, you can find it at VoicesForChrist.org. Now, I suppose Joe might come, which would be a good thing. If not, I'm to and out, and then he's on the afternoon. So let's turn again to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. Chapter 11, last verse of chapter 11.
Now, let me just ask. I, I'm assuming I go to 11-ish, 5-after-ish-ish, with an emphasis on the ish. Revelation chapter 11, verse 19. The temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in the temple the ark of his testament. There were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Let me just stop there, and we're going to read more in this section. We're doing a little bit different thing. At least my approach is a little bit different due to the nature of uh, uh, the time and constraints of time, but we're not trying to get an exhaustive, uh, detailed exposition of the book of Revelation, but looking in the book of the Revelation and seeing what we can find of Christ. I've already been encouraged by more than one who said they've sort of accepted the challenge. Praise the Lord and hallelujah. Joe is here. Um, to look in the book of Revelation and look for the Lord Jesus Christ, to not shy away from the book. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and it does reveal him to us. And so we'll never be disappointed if we get into this book and we look for Christ, because we'll find him there. Now, having said that, that is not to minimize the importance of the prophetic things that are found in this book. It's a tremendous book. Its difficulty lies in a couple of uh, areas. One, it is a book that is highly filled with symbolism. Some of the symbolism is interpreted for us, so we're not left to guess what it is. Some is so obvious that it's sort of like if you don't know what that is, maybe you ought to read somewhere else first kind of a thing. If you don't know what the lamb is or why he's called the lamb, you know, that's uh, one of those things you, you, you sort of have to go back and maybe read a few other places, so kind of, the book kind of assumes that. But um, other things are left, and we're not quite sure. We wouldn't go to the stake for them. We have some ideas. But much is here revealed uh, pertaining to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we want to see. We want to see him in this book. And as I mentioned uh, in our first message, that one of the ways that he is seen in this book of the Revelation is in his triumph the triumph of the Lamb. And we begin to get at something that is very central to the story of the whole Bible, the Word of God, and that is the government of God. You go back to the early stages of creation in the book of Genesis, you begin to see how God's plan started unfolding. A man placed upon the planet, given certain authority to govern to use his stewardship, and so on, of the fall and all that came in, of the being that's known as Lucifer, Satan, the devil. And you trace in Scripture his origin. And again, you come very close to, uh, to the nature of the government of God and what it's about. And so in this final book, we see the triumph of the Lamb, the basis of his government. We saw in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, his rights as creator, his rights as redeemer. And not only his rights, but how his government holds sway over our individual lives. We bow and acknowledge the government and rule of God in our lives as believers because he is the lamb who was slain for us. He redeemed us by his blood. 
He has made us kings and priests, a kingdom of priests unto our God. And because of that, that basis, we acknowledge his rule, his right, his rights in our lives. And so the very nature of God's government is seen, the triumph of the Lamb. We looked a bit at it in our first message at the person of Christ, as he's seen in chapter 1, his triumph in regard to the church, chapters 2 and 3, and then the very scene of heaven itself where his praises and hallelujahs and worthiness is sung because of his rights as creator and as redeemer. When we come to this next section, it will take you from chapter 6 to chapter 19. And if you have any familiarity with the book of Revelation, you know that there are a series of judgments that take place. There are three series of judgments that take place. The first judgments that occur are called the seal judgments. As the book or the scroll is unfolded and as each seal is broken, various judgments take place upon the planet. They are judgments that are sometimes referred to as providential in nature. And by that, what is meant is they are not necessarily things that don't already occur. Earthquake, famine, disease, war, those type of things. But they occur with a mounting intensity. When you come to the next series of judgments that are called the trumpet judgments, which are inaugurated by uh, and initiated by the sounding of trumpets, the seven trumpet judgments, the intensity of the judgments increases. The extent of the judgments increases so that uh, fractional portions of the whole earth and population are affected by those judgments. And then when finally you come to the last series of judgments that are called the vile or the bowl judgments, these come directly out of the presence of of God himself, the very innermost part of the Holy of Holies is seen, the temple of the, or the sanctuary of the temple in heaven itself, the glory of God is manifest, and, and the beings come forth with the bowls that have been filled with the wrath of God directly from the very presence of God. These judgments are not providential in that sense, they are not in any way indirect, this is the very outpouring of God's wrath upon this planet. And one of the amazing things that we find in this book of Revelation, and in some ways a tremendous encouragement to us, is that God is not ashamed of his judgments. He doesn't hide behind a curtain. In the full blaze of his glory and in the revelation of his word, he shows his judgments. And ultimately, when God judges this planet, which he has every right to do, his judgments are a cause for praise and worship. When the judgments of God are ultimately poured forth upon this planet, you will read expressions such as what you have in chapter 15. that says in verse 4, verse 3, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee. Why? Why will all nations come and worship before thee? For thy judgments are made manifest. 
The very judgments of God will be seen to be righteous and true and holy. God is not ashamed of his judgments. And we as believers do not have to be ashamed of God's judgments either. Because his judgments will proceed from his absolute holiness and righteousness and omniscience and all of the other characteristics that are revealed here in this book of the Revelation. And so the judgments of God, that final phase of judgments in the vials or the bowls that are poured out upon the planet. But what I'd like to do now, since we don't have time to take in that whole section of chapter 6 to chapter 19, is to look into this interior, what might be considered the central uh, portion of this, this section of Revelation, and think about the triumph of the Lamb in this respect. The triumph of the Lamb over the world and over the ruler of this world. Now, lest it sound contradictory, well, it may sound contradictory, but let me clear up what may sound like a contradiction, and that is this, that last night I said that as we open this book of the Revelation, one of the things that we find is that John sees, in the very first vision he sees, a throne set in heaven, and upon that throne one sat. There is an occupied throne in heaven. And I made some point, some attempt last night to make the point that the world, contrary to what our eyes sometimes tell us and our senses sometimes feel, is not spinning out of control. That God Almighty is in absolute control. That everything is being worked out according to the perfection of his plan and all will come to fruition just as he has planned and just as he has laid out. Having said that, Within the parameters of his plan, there are certain things and certain beings that operate under God's sovereignty with limitations, and yet they have certain power and certain authority. And so when we come to Satan, we find that the New Testament will refer to uh, Satan as the prince of the power of the air as the ruler of this present world, or this present age might be better. The spirit that affects the age in which we live. And unless you are a person who is blinded because of your rejection of God's truth and have been given over to what the Scripture calls a reprobate mind and cannot come to a right spiritual conclusion, because you've rejected the light and the knowledge of God's truth, it should be apparent that evil exists in this world. And that behind that evil, there are forces that affect people and cause them to do things in such a way that there is no other explanation for it. And we're not left at a loss. The Bible tells us there is a power, a force of evil that is operative in the world in which we live. And it is not just some nebulous, you know, may the force be with you kind of thing. It is a personality. He is identified for us in the very portion that we open up tonight, or this, this, this morning, in chapter 12, with a number of descriptive names. He is called in verse 9, a dragon, 
a serpent, the devil, Satan, chapter 12 and verse 9, which deceives the whole earth, the accuser of the brethren, and the persecutor of the people of God. Those are some of the ways and some of the titles by which he is described. He is a personality. Now, I won't take the time to go into his existence, how he was created, and how he fell, and all the rest. But we want to come now to the central portion of the book of Revelation to see the triumph of the Lamb over the world and over the ruler of this world over Satan. Let me mention again one of the difficulties in the book of Revelation. Two of them, actually. One, if you don't know a lot of the other portions of the book of the, book of the Bible, it makes the book of Revelation a bit more difficult. Because you have to know at least a little bit, some working knowledge of books like Matthew and Zechariah and Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Genesis and on and on it goes. Now, that I believe that's part of, part of the inherent blessing that comes from studying the book of Revelation because it forces you to study so many other books of the Bible. But if you, you don't have some work acknowledge of the layout and the, and the main themes of those books, then it does make the book of Revelation a bit more difficult to understand. Uh, the other difficulty that you find in the book of Revelation is that not everything is pure linear like this. It doesn't just go, you know, in this fashion, you know, straightforward chronology. And the section we're on now is one of those sections where at certain points in this passage, it takes us back into the past. Other portions of this passage we can consider for the present. And other parts of this same passage will cast our thoughts to the future. And being able to differentiate those things is a big help in the book. Having issued all of those caveats, I don't believe in any way it will detract, and hopefully it hasn't thus far, from what we'll see this morning in this section. The triumph of the Lamb over this world and over its ruler. And so in chapter 12, we're introduced to a section now that is a prelude to what is going to take place in chapter 13. And I would dare say that even among those who don't know the book of Revelation that well, there are certain features of chapter 13 that people are familiar with more than anything else in the whole book of the Revelation. For it is in chapter 13 that we have such features such as the mark of the beast, the number 666. And many people who've never studied the book of Revelation or don't know its basic layout have heard of things such as that or have heard those terms expressed before. So it's probably one of the most uh, familiar uh, sections, at least in some of the things that it expresses in some of its features, of any of uh, the other parts of the book of the Revelation. In chapter 12, we have a prelude in this sense. It sets up what is going to take place yet in the future. Now, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Okay? I'm going to give you the good news first. 
<laughs> That's not a bad thing to do, is it? To give the good news first. The good news is that if you and I are believers in the Lord Jesus, if we are saved and know Christ as Savior, I believe, not based on what somebody taught in the 1800s, not based upon what somebody wrote in a book somewhere, or even the notes in some kind of Bible, I believe based upon what the Word of God clearly teaches. And I am very unapologetic in this, that you and I who are believers will not be on this planet when the future events described in chapter 13 take place. The very next event on God's calendar is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for His church. I am also unapologetic in my use of the term rapture, which has fallen on hard times in some circles. It is a biblical word. You say it's not found in Scripture. It's not found in the Bible. Well, if you get the right Bible, it is. <laughs> Because and I'm not trying to be cute with that. It, it doesn't come from a Greek word. It comes from a Latin word. And so if you look at a Latin Bible, at the Vulgate, or any of those Latin versions of the Scripture, you will see where the root of that word comes from. It is a, it is a concept, however, that is found, no matter what translation of the Bible you use in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and other passages of Scripture, that the Lord Jesus is returning coming first to the air. He's going to receive those who are His, the living and the dead, who are going to rise to meet Him. As one brother reminded me, they live up on the mountain range. They're going to get a little head start. Whether that's the case or not, I have no theological uh, you know, way to back that up, but um, it's a nice thought anyway. But in all seriousness, that's the good news, which might lead you to think, well, if we're not going to be there anyway, what does it matter? You're going to see that in just a moment, I hope. Now, the, the flip side of that is if you're not a believer in Christ, if you're not a believer in Christ, you may very likely have to experience what we find in this book of Revelation, which is a time of tribulation that is so severe that the Lord Jesus, when he stood upon this planet and could look down the corridors both of past history and future history, said there's coming a time upon this planet, a tribulation so great, such as the world has never seen before. The worst atrocities, the worst tragedies, the worst natural disasters, nothing to compare to what yet is going to come in the future during this time of the Revelation. And if you're not saved, you need to be saved. You need to be saved anyway. <laughs> but I'm telling you, you need to be saved too because the Lord is coming. And if you reject the truth and you do not love the truth, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you'll be susceptible to believing the lie. And if you believe the lie, well, don't fancy that when the Lord comes somehow you're you're going to, everything's going to magically change, and you're then going to believe the truth. You're going to be exposed to what takes place in that time of tribulation. So you need to be saved, and you can be saved. See, that's, we go back to the good news now, right? You can be saved now. You don't have to get out of your seat. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to walk an aisle. 
All you have to do is look to the Lord and, and basically, and not in my words, but you before God say, Lord, I, I'm a sinner. I realize it. And Christ came and He died for sinners. And I qualify. And I know you'll save me because you've saved everyone who's ever come to you by faith. I want to place my faith and trust not in myself or my religion or anything else, but in the Lord Jesus Christ because He died for me. You're the sinner that Christ died for. And if you'll accept that, receive Him, you'll be saved. You'll be saved. You can do that today. We urge you to. And so coming back now and focusing in, in chapter 12, there are three attempts that are identified here at Satan's attempts to, um, to defeat, if you will, God's plan, God's program, God's people. And one of the things that you find is that in all three of these attempts, he is frustrated. His plans do not work out, do not come to fruition. In the first attempt, we find a great wonder, we're told, in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, upon her head a crown of twelve stars, and she had a child. She traveled in birth. Remember, I said some things are identified for us. If you know the book of Genesis, you might remember Joseph's dream. You might remember what the twelve stars represent, the twelve boys that Jacob had, who ultimately became the twelve tribes, the nation of Israel. And so there was a woman with a child. Now, imagine this, because again, the book of Revelation wants us to think and have our, uh, not only our intellect stirred, but our imagination stirred as well. And so there's an imagery that's used. You see this great red dragon in verse 3. And here he is before this woman. And this woman is at the most vulnerable stage of her life that she could possibly be. She's right at the very point of delivering the child. I mean, it's right at that moment when the child is about to be delivered. A woman couldn't possibly be at a more vulnerable point than that. And here's this great red dragon about to devour the child just as soon as it's born. And it looks like he's going to win. And all of a sudden... She brings forth a man-child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. No question who that is. Direct prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And he's caught up to God and to his throne. And we're reminded that at that time when death seemed to have its victory and the powers of darkness seemed to be uh, uh, effectively holding their sway, when Christ died on the cross, and was buried. But the Scripture doesn't end there, does it? Three days later, He rose from the dead and ultimately ascended back into heaven and showed that the powers of Satan were defeated. Death was overcome. The grave was conquered. Christ is alive. The Lamb has triumphed. At that very stage, fr frustrated, Satan then turns his attention to those who have the testimony of Jesus Christ. They, however, overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, verse 11, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. They overcame him on legal grounds, 
the blood of the Lamb. They overcame Him on the grounds of their trust, the word of their testimony. They overcame Him because they were loyal. They loved not their lives unto death. And they overcame Him once again. He then turns His attention to persecuting the woman which brought forth the man-child. The earth helped the woman. I believe the woman here is the nation of Israel. He turns His persecution towards the woman. She's given a place of protection for three and a half years. Verse 14, the earth helped the woman. And again, Satan was frustrated at his attempts to destroy the people of God, the program of God, the Messiah of God, the plan of God. And it's at this stage which sets up what takes place in 13, that as John says, I stood upon the sand of the sea, I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. Upon his horns ten crowns, upon his heads the name of blasphemy, and so on. The dragon gave him power in verse 2, and his seat in great authority. John remarks in verse 3 that all the world wondered after the beast. Now here's an amazing thing. You might be surprised to note that when it comes to the subject of worship, if I were to ask the question, which chapter in the book of the Revelation mentions worship the most, or at least repeats the phrase fairly regularly or often? You might be surprised that it's chapter 13. All the world wondered after the beast who'd had his head wounded to death, deadly wound healed. They worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. They worshipped the beast saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And you'll find continually repeated the subject of worship in this chapter. What you have here is finally Satan having been frustrated. At that point in history, he begins to pull out all the stops. He engineers the rise of the one who is called the beast, who is often referred to as the Antichrist, his minister of propaganda, the false prophet. They're able to perform incredible miracles that are deceiving the whole world and those that live in the world. And ultimately, at his pinnacle of power, having united on in a global way the religions of the world that are still here after the Lord comes, the politics of the world, and the commerce of the world, uniting it all under one global empire, he ascends to be the head of that empire. In the middle of that week, that seven-year period, According to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he will sit in the temple of God, which has been rebuilt because he will have solved the Middle East crisis, at least temporarily. There will be a covenant of peace between the Jews and the Arabs in that land. There will be a rebuilt temple on that spot in the nation of Israel. He's going to do what nobody, no politician uh, from any party will ever be able to do until he does it. He will sit in the temple of God. He will demand to be worshipped as God. And He will cause all who do not receive the mark, either in their hand or in their forehead, and all who do not worship the image of the beast 
that they should be killed. The number of the beast, no mystery. It is the number of a man, 666. Now, how he'll do this, I have no idea. Whether it'll be through an implanted chip so that you can be scanned like they do even now for certain medical conditions and procedures, or whether it's some other supernatural means, I have no idea. You probably don't remember where I started reading, but I began reading in chapter 11 and verse 19 for a reason. It introduces this section. And it introduces this section by saying that the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in the temple the ark of his testament, the ark of his covenant. Now to understand that, of course, you'd have to know a little bit about the book of Exodus, and maybe a little bit about Leviticus, and probably a little bit about Deuteronomy and a few other things, and a little bit about the tabernacle. But you remember that the Hebrews, the nation of Israel, had a tabernacle designed by God. And one of the central pieces of furniture of that tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. It was actually two pieces of furniture. It was the box that was the sort of the bottom part. Matter of fact, um, it looked like a coffin, didn't it? And a, a rectangular box with poles in the sides that people could carry. Interesting that it looked like a coffin. Because in one way, it did communicate death. It contained certain things inside. The top of the box was the lid of the ark, which had the two winged creatures and cherubim that were there made out of one piece of pure gold. Inside that box, the ark of the covenant, was the covenant of God, the tables of the law. Now, maybe you can't quote all of the Ten Commandments. Maybe you don't remember all of them. But you probably remember some of the first and very basic ones. This was the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel, the law that Moses came to represent, as Joe has been reminding us. Moses and the law sometimes are used synonymously to refer to one another. Moses and the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other God before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers unto the children, even of the third and fourth generation, of them that hate me. So the basic tenets of that covenant begin no other gods before me. No graven image is to be made and bowed down to and worshipped. I, the Lord thy God, demand your complete devotion and loyalty. Why does it begin this way in this section? Because this is earth's, really in a sense, final, climactic, ultimate battle. It has been being played out since the dawn of creation. It will culminate on planet Earth in what we read in chapters 12 and 13. It is the battle for the loyalty of the hearts of human beings. That's why the word worship is used here so, so commonly, so prevalent. Because you see, there is involved in the concept of worship the idea of loyalty. Certain terms fall upon misuse, sometimes disuse. 
One of the terms that generally those who would identify themselves as evangelicals don't use is the, is the term sacrament because of how it's been misused. But if you go back to what that term originally meant, you'll see how it became identified with what we would refer to as the Lord's Supper. When the Roman soldier took his sacramentum, it was an oath. He pledged his loyalty to the Caesar and to Rome. And you see, when those early Christians took a simple loaf and the fruit of the vine, they were saying more than just, Lord, we're coming to worship you. In that sense, they were saying, as I put my hand to that loaf, as I take that cup with the fruit of the vine, which is representative of his blood, I am saying I am loyal to you. You are my Lord. It says something very forcefully when you and I who are believers take of that loaf and take of that cup. We are expressing our loyalty. This answers a very big question. It doesn't fully answer it. It gets at it a little bit. And what it gets at is this. It's a huge question. I don't have the full answer for it. Why did God ever allow Satan to continue in the first place? <laughs> Knowing the evil, the influence, the effect of this created being, fallen creature that he is. Why did God not just wipe him out of the universe when he opposed God in those ages gone by? Well, part of the reason seems, and it comes again in this chapter a bit, if there's going to be love, if there's going to be loyalty, it must involve at some level the choice that you and I will have to make of whether we will be loyal and whether we will choose to love God or not. Seems to me in my mind if that choice is not real, then we don't have true love or loyalty. And here we get at one of the differences. You see, Satan, from what we read in this section, he is pleased to have your loyalty, even if he has to force it by threat of death or persecution or worse. But oh, the strategies that are seen, the difference in the strategies that are found here. Because that's not the way the Lord is. Think of the strategies. You see it played out in this scene in chapter 13. Ultimately, Satan engineering the rise of this beast who exalts himself and demands to be worshipped as God. What is God's strategy? The Son of God humbled himself and came into this world and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. And rather than exalt himself, 
He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, to suffer the shame and the humiliation and all that He experienced on Calvary's cross to win by that means the love and the loyalty of the human heart. Oh, what a strategy God had. The cross was no accident. The cross was not God having to come up with something. It's in the divine plan. And what an opposite, what an, how an opposition it stands to the strategy of the enemy who would try and force your devotion by whatever means he could get it. By deception or by threat or any other means. Not God. And so what an insight into the plan of God. I love this section of the book of Revelation. I love it because you begin to sense what God has been up to. And you begin to think what John must have thought. He looked, sometimes like we do, it looks like, as we see in the world around us, it looks like the enemy's winning. It looks like evil is triumphing. It looks like wickedness has taken over and it's unstoppable. That's how it seems, doesn't it? John thought the same thing. He looked, he says, all the world wondered after the beast. The whole world's gone crazy following the beast. But then in chapter 14, he turns and he looks. And there stood the Lamb on Mount Zion, the very center place that God's government will go forth from on this planet. And he wasn't alone. There were with him 144,000. And they hadn't taken the mark of the beast. They didn't have his mark in their foreheads. They had the Father's mark and name written in their foreheads. And he begins to describe, as they begin to sing, a new song. The song of triumph. And they described in verse 4, those, they were not defiled with women, they were virgins. In other words, these, the normal, if you will, pursuit of men was not what had occupied these. They followed the Lamb. That was their pursuit. Wherever He went, and they were redeemed from among men, the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb, no guile found in their mouth, no deceit without fault before the very throne of God. The triumph of the Lamb. And you see, we get now to part of the practicality of this passage. If in that day, which this describes, when the conditions are so severe and the persecution so terrible, with Satan having pulled out all the stops, if in that day these people can be loyal to the Lamb under those conditions? Well, you take heart because you and I can be loyal to Him now in this world in which we live. 
and we can follow him in the world in which we live. And another point, remember the beast had issued a decree in chapter 13. No man can buy, nobody can sell. But these were redeemed. <laughs> and you know the basic meaning of the word redemption is to purchase. <laughs> the beast said nobody buys or sells. God says my redemption program will continue. <laughs> and it still does to this day. Purchased with the blood of Christ. This section will close in chapter 15 in a very interesting way. John says in verse 2, I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, over the number of his name, and they stand on a sea of glass having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. That's interesting. I think Joe, briefly in passing, mentioned something about the deliverance of the e Israel out of the land of Egypt. Deliverance from the bondage of Pharaoh. Deliverance from the slavery they had been in. You know the first mention of the word song? It's found in Exodus chapter 15. When they came across that Red Sea, they sang the song of Moses. The Lord has triumphed gloriously. Who is like Jehovah? You remember what happened in chapter 13? When the throngs of earth said, Who is like the beast? But now, by the way, the last mention of the word song, the first Exodus 15, the last Revelation 15. And guess what? It's the same song, only different. Now it's the song of Moses and the Lamb. They've gotten the victory over not just Pharaoh, not just Egypt, not just the bondage, not just the slavery, but over all that plus more. And they stand not now on the other side of a Red Sea, but on a sea of glass mingled with fire. And they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, and all nations shall come and worship before thee. For thy judgments are made manifest. Oh, I tell you, the triumph of the Lamb over the, the world and the powers of this world and the enemy of God and the people of God who join with Him in that day and you and I in this day who really we've entered into that, into His triumph already. What a thing it'll be when the consummation occurs to share in that with Him. Father, I believe that the desire of every heart of everyone that knows you is to be loyal to the Lord Jesus, to love him who first loved us. Help us to learn what it means. Lord, if they could follow you in that day, what excuse do we have in this day? 
Help us, we pray. We give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.